Welcome to the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. In the next 30 minutes, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our latest issue. Let's get started. Mental health care is underutilized in the United States, with less than half of those individuals with a mental disorder receiving some treatment in the previous 12 months. Integration of mental health care into primary care settings may improve access to mental health services, particularly for subgroups of patients such as women and older adults who are less likely to receive specialty mental health care. The Veterans Affairs Health System began a national implementation of the integration of primary care with mental health in 2007, and this study assessed whether the patients treated by these services represent a distinct population from patients treated in specialty care clinics. The authors obtained data from the VA National Patient Care Database for a random sample of over 240,000 VA primary care patients with a mental health diagnosis in 2009. They compared demographic and clinical characteristics of patients who received mental health treatment exclusively in a specialty mental health clinic with those who received mental health treatment exclusively in a primary care mental health integration setting. Compared to patients treated in specialty mental health clinics, integrated services users were more likely to be aged 65 and older, female, and diagnosed with less severe mental health conditions such as depressive disorders, other than major depression, an unspecified anxiety disorder, or adjustment disorder. Integration of primary care and mental health care within the VA health system reaches demographic subgroups that are traditionally less likely to use specialty mental health care. By treating patients with less severe mental health disorders, integrated primary care mental health services appear to expand upon rather than duplicate specialty care services. This study was supported by the Department of Veterans Affairs Primary Care Mental Health Integration National Evaluation and the VA Health Services Research and Developmental Services and Postdoctoral Fellowship Support. Diabetes is a common disorder among primary care patients, and many of these individuals also have psychosocial problems such as depression. The objectives of this practice-based study were to determine whether current depression in patients with diabetes is associated with poor quality of care and poor patient adherence to treatment regimens, and whether current depression is associated with patient diabetes outcomes independent of its relationship to quality of care and patient adherence. The data were collected from March 2006 to March 2011 in the offices of family physicians who belong to the statewide Primary Care Ambulatory Research and Resources Consortium of the Texas Academy of Family Physicians who also funded this study. Seven primary care physicians enrolled 10 to 20 patients with diabetes presenting for routine follow-up. 
106 patients completed a questionnaire documenting their depressive symptoms, compliance with diabetes therapy, diabetes-related quality of life, and patient satisfaction. Physicians completed a questionnaire documenting whether they felt that the patient had depression as well as depression treatments they ordered. A research coordinator evaluated the quality of diabetes care provided at each practice site. The authors found that depression was associated with poor compliance, poor quality of care, poor diabetes-related quality of life, and lower patient satisfaction. Even after adjusting for compliance and quality of care, depression was still associated with poor quality of life and lower patient satisfaction. Physicians were more likely to recognize depression in their female patients, in those with moderate to severe depression, and among patients who reported poor quality of life. Poor diabetes control was associated with the provision of counseling. These findings suggest that physicians must work to improve their recognition of depression among diabetic patients, perhaps through the routine use of a depression screening instrument, such as the nine-item patient health questionnaire. In addition, physicians must be alert to the potential for depression to compromise the provision of quality diabetes care and its resultant poor diabetes control. Finally, Unless depression is recognized and treated, patient satisfaction is likely to remain poor, even with excellent quality of care. Patients with schizophrenia frequently relapse and require hospitalization. For stable patients, the annual risk of hospitalization is about 10%. For a recently relapsed patient, the risk rises to 50%. Therefore, treatment algorithms that reduce hospitalizations would be of great benefit. Brennan and colleagues previously identified a genetic marker, SALT4A1-1, that predicted response to olanzapine. In this article, they performed a post hoc analysis of hospitalization risk using data from the Clinical Antipsychotic Trials of Intervention Effectiveness Study to investigate the impact of this genetic marker on hospitalization risk in patients treated with olanzapine, perfenazine, quetiapine, risperidone, and suprazidone. The authors found that patients who were positive for the genetic marker displayed a greater than five-fold decrease in risk of hospitalization when treated with olanzapine and possibly quetiapine. Particularly for patients at high risk of hospitalization due to a recent relapse, SALT4A1-1 positive status predicted a substantial reduction in risk of hospitalization in patients treated with olanzapine and quetiapine. The genetic marker did not impact risk of hospitalization in patients treated with perfenazine, risperidone, or ziprazidone. In conclusion, the genetic marker SALT4A1-1 identifies a subset of patients that have greatly reduced risk of hospitalization when treated with olanzapine or quetiapine. 
Therefore, identification of this genetic marker in patients with schizophrenia may have clinical utility for reducing their risk for relapse and hospitalization. This study was supported by grants from the National Institute of Mental Health and the Kentucky Economic Development Cabinet. Patients with severe mental illnesses, such as schizophrenia, tend to be at a higher risk for developing conditions such as diabetes, high blood pressure, and high cholesterol. Cardiovascular disease is therefore a significant problem in these patients and has been shown to be a significant contributor to early death. However, most research to improve medication use in patients with schizophrenia has focused on mental health medications. Little attention has been given to the prescription management of non-mental health conditions in these populations, and available evidence suggests that these conditions are poorly managed. In this study, the authors looked at adherence to three classes of medications that are non-mental health related in patients with schizophrenia. Specifically, they wanted to see whether patients who had better antipsychotic management were more adherent to medications for diabetes, high cholesterol, and high blood pressure. They also examined the effect that this adherence has on the cost of treating these patients, as well as on the use of hospital care, emergency department services, and outpatient physician services. MedStat MarketScan Medicaid databases from 2004 to 2008 were used to identify a retrospective cohort of schizophrenia patients with pre-existing cardiometabolic medication use who had initiated a second-generation antipsychotic between July 1, 2004 and December 31, 2006. The final population represented 1,006 patients with schizophrenia who were newly initiated on antipsychotic treatments and who also took cardiometabolic medication. This study was funded through a contract with Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. The results showed that patients who were better managed or more adherent to antipsychotic treatments also had better use of medications for non-mental health conditions. The better use of medications resulted in improved care as represented by lower emergency department and hospital admissions and lower health spending in this population. These findings suggest that clinicians should consider both mental health and non-mental health conditions when treating patients with schizophrenia. The prescribing of second-generation antipsychotics has greatly increased over the last two decades. This increase is perhaps due to the belief that second-generation medications are at least as effective as and more tolerable than the first-generation antipsychotics. The authors of this study reviewed the most recent literature from the last decade, hoping to better understand safety and tolerability in patients taking second-generation antipsychotics. This knowledge is especially important due to the growing prevalence of obesity in the United States and the evidence of metabolic concerns associated with these medications. For this review, a Medline search was conducted via PubMed using only English-language articles from the year 2000 to 2010. This study had no outside funding sources. 
Six adult studies were reviewed and suggest that there may be a lower association of weight gain and diabetes with zeprazidone, aripiprazole, and haloperidol compared to olanzapine, clozapine, quetiapine, and risperidone. Also, there may be less difference among these medications than originally thought with regard to frequency of extrapyramidal side effects. Five use studies were reviewed and suggest that olanzapine may be associated with the most weight gain, and metabolic and extrapyramidal side effects are quite prevalent overall. The authors conclude that effectiveness may be quite similar among all antipsychotics, and there may be a lower association of metabolic side effects with certain antipsychotics compared to others. Youth may be particularly sensitive to both metabolic and extrapyramidal side effects of these medications. Major depressive disorder is commonly treated with antidepressants, which can take several weeks or even months to show a positive effect. During this time, the patient is exposed to continued suffering. In addition, two out of three people receiving antidepressants for depression will not respond to treatment in the first round, and their chances of responding to subsequent rounds of treatment diminish further. Moreover, if switched to another antidepressant, the patient and clinician may need to again wait months for a positive treatment effect. Therefore, finding a medication combination that can show an effect quickly and robustly would offer clinicians and patients a needed treatment option. This article by Casey and colleagues analyzed data from three similarly designed clinical trials in which patients taking antidepressants began the atypical antipsychotic aripiprazole in combination with antidepressants as part of their treatment for major depressive disorder. The results showed that patients' symptoms improved as early as two weeks after beginning the medication combination, and improvement was maintained for the duration of the trial. Furthermore, patients who received adjunctive aripiprazole experienced a more robust response compared to patients receiving antidepressant monotherapy. This analysis showed that a significant number of patients with major depressive disorder had a robust and early response to the combination of aripiprazole with antidepressants, allowing clinicians to make clinically meaningful decisions early during treatment. This study was supported by Bristol-Myers, Squibb, and Otsuka. In the 1990s, the suicide rate decreased in many countries while the use of antidepressants increased. A group from Finland investigated the relationship between suicide rates and antidepressant use and found in a previous study that suicide rate decreased more in men than in women, but the increase in antidepressant use was greater in women than in men. In a new study, the authors tested their hypothesis that the increased use of antidepressants among women would be associated with the lower suicide rate in men. Population-based suicide rate and reimbursed prescriptions of antidepressants, an indicator of use of antidepressants, were analyzed for the period from 1994 to 2001 for the entire population of Finland. 
a researcher applied unrestricted scholarship from the Eli Lilly Foundation of Finland was received for this study. The decreased suicide rate in men was significantly associated with increased antidepressant prescriptions among women, even though the model took into account the increase in antidepressant use among men and the effects of age, time, and region. However, the decrease in suicides among women was not associated with the increase in antidepressant use among men. The authors speculate that increased use of antidepressants in women, in addition to decreasing their own depressiveness and anxiety, also leads to decreased depressiveness in their close social networks, thereby decreasing stress and suicidality in men belonging to this network. In this article, the authors used an organ system approach to summarize recent evidence on negative effects of long-term opioid treatment for non-cancer pain. Systems considered were gastrointestinal, respiratory, cardiovascular, central nervous, musculoskeletal, endocrine, and immune. A search for studies published in peer-reviewed journals from 2005 to 2011 was conducted using Medline, the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality Clinical Guidelines and Evidence Reports, and the Cochrane Database of Systematic Reviews. Seventy-four articles were selected for evidence regarding effects of chronic opioid use on a particular organ system. And of those, 43 were included on the basis of direct relevance to opioid prescriptions in the primary care setting. Results showed that through a variety of mechanisms, opioids cause adverse events in many organ systems, including constipation, sleep disordered breathing, fractures, cognitive deficits, depression, addictions, overdoses, and deaths. A dose-dependent relationship exists between opioid therapy and severity of adverse effects, and opioid-related adverse effects can cause significant declines in health-related quality of life and, and increased health care costs. The authors provide a useful guide for patients and physicians when considering starting opioid therapy. Physicians and patients are encouraged to weigh the full spectrum of medical risks against a realistic assessment of observed benefits for pain. The authors highly recommend continued monitoring of patients receiving long-term opioid therapy and suggest that a systems-based approach can help facilitate appropriate prescriptions and pain management. This study was supported by grants from the Group Health Foundation, the National Institute of Drug Abuse, and the National Institute on Aging. Now we invite you to engage in an interactive CME case study from the Banner Alzheimer's Institute. The Banner Alzheimer's Institute Case Conference is a weekly event in which physicians and staff discuss challenging cases of patients seen at the Institute's Memory Disorders Clinic. In this issue of The Companion, we highlight the case of Mr. A, an 81-year-old man with a two-year history of memory loss and fluctuating periods of confusion, as well as visual hallucinations and sleep disturbance. Does this patient have dementia? 
Alzheimer's disease or an underlying psychiatric disorder? What should his treatment plan entail? Answer these and other questions about this patient case and find out how your colleagues who attended the weekly case conference responded to this instructive offering by visiting us online at primarycarecompanion.com. Have you ever seen a patient covered in feces and wonder why it happened? Can you imagine a normal person behaving in such a fashion? Have you felt disgusted? and thought that your reaction might have affected the care you provided. If you have, then the case vignette presented by Stern and colleagues in this issue's Rounds in the General Hospital should serve as a stimulus for further discussion and clinical guidance and prepare you for the notion that certain situations direct medical care more than symptoms. In the case presentation from this issue's psychotherapy casebook, the story of Mr. A, a 70-year-old veteran who is adjusting to life on the nursing home unit, is told by a psychiatrist and hospice nurse. On our website, primarycarecompanion.com, learn how their psychotherapeutic interventions help this patient adapt to his new environment. As the authors note, Being present and just listening are important aspects of psychotherapy, and although remaining silent requires patience and practice and may be uncomfortable for some, its positive effects on patients is sometimes like no other. This month, we highlight the case of a patient treated with lamotrigine for bipolar disorder who also had a long history of eczema with regular flare-ups. During treatment with lamotrigine, the patient's eczema resolved. Read this interesting case report, along with a variety of letters and features in this issue. Thanks for joining me for this summary of offerings in our current issue of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. Please visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com for new postings, including the opportunity for continuing medical education credit and special web-based interactive content. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me for the next installment of the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS soundbites. <laughs>